I think it's important as we come to the Lord's Word uh, to understand the importance of expository preaching. I think that every church uh, should expositorily preach to the book of Romans, for one, verse by verse. Deal with the tough topics. I think every church should grapple with the book of 1 Timothy and, and grapple with every verse. It will humble us um, greatly as we try to deal with the mysteries of God's word and his wisdom that he imparts to us. What a blessing it is to come to chapter 2 of 1 Timothy and to have it guide our life, specifically speaking to men. We have been going through in our men's study, grace and granite as a contemplation. Sometimes I think it feels like the ladies get hammered in church for certain things as we go through scripture and we will go through some tough verses coming up just to kind of understand them. But if you really read carefully, men, we don't lead very well. And we have to do better for God's grace and his glory. It says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, if you turn in your Bibles, he says, first of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator, also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed, a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Therefore, I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Let's open up with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, help us this morning to pursue your truth, to pursue your glory, and to receive your word. Let it bear good fruit for all eternity. Lord, may we be increasingly reflective of your person, aware of our sin, repentant before you, ready to engage the gospel work in the world around us. Lord, help us not to be so encumbered by this world that we miss the things of greatest importance to you. Lord, as we even see the unrest in our world today, people dying in the Middle East, the issues in Ukraine, the issues in our own country, Lord, we pray that your gospel would go forward, that men and women across these lands might be revitalized in your thinking, moved by your spirit to receive your grace, that they might have peace with you. Lord, I pray that we would be increasingly prayer warriors for these things. 
In your name I pray, amen. During our nation's constitutional convention, tempers flared and various arguments became heated. At one time it was necessary to take a three-day recess due to stagnation and heated arguments. Our nation's foundations were being discussed and formed. The peril of division and resulting disorder could impact the trajectory of an entire nation. Preceding years saw many, many deaths, some by disease, some by combat, some by just the nature of being together in prisoner of war camps. The gathering in Philadelphia, the votes would ratify the organizational structure of the government, made this document, the Constitution, very critical. Men like George Washington, James Madison, Benjamin Franklin, James Wilson, John Rutledge, Governor Morris, and many others sat in that room in Philadelphia to hammer out a document. Ben Franklin, most likely not a believer in Christ, but seeing the chaos of the situation and the importance of it, said these words, We shall be divided by our little partial local interests. Our projects will be confounded, and we ourselves shall become a reproach and byword down to future ages. I therefore beg leave to move that henceforth prayers imploring the assistance of heaven and its blessing on our deliberation be held in this assembly every morning before we proceed to business, and that one or more of the clergy of this city be requested to officiate in that service. Prayer transforms one's ownership of a problem and places that dilemma in the hands of God. Franklin's wisdom was to transfer the petty to the transcendent. While these heartfelt prayers were answered and commendable, Paul's approach to the issue of peace and tranquility was far more specific for the church. In fact, our nation's founders prayed for blessings on the deliberations. But similar to the issues in the church of Ephesus, those blessings were not equally applicable to all living in colonial America. It could be that clergy called upon to pray might have used the instruction in 1 Timothy chapter 2 as a model to address the real needs of all men, that being the salvation of the lost all around them. The Constitutional Committee was not a church, and the instructions in this section of Scripture address how we ought to evangelistically pray. The books of 1 and 2 Timothy are foundational to the working of the church. The instructions contained in these books ought to be known by every church member and attender in every era. The focus of 1 Timothy is denoted in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. It says, I write these things, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes these things to you, hoping to come to you soon. But if I should be delayed, I have written so that you will know how people ought to act in God's household which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. This is the challenge. This is actually the focus verse of 1 Timothy. How ought we act? 
What are the key things of importance in God's household? Certainly the backdrop or urgency of writing was to address false teachers. So that this is a warning to Timothy and to all of us out of chapter 1. Issues regarding false teachers were very apparent. Issues regarding leadership, direction, focusing on strange doctrines, myths, and endless genealogies, giving rise to speculations rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. Think about that. Just let that weigh over you. A church focused on strange doctrines, church founded by Paul. Paul spent three years preaching here, slipping back to myths and endless genealogies, giving rise to speculations. Things that are unimportant to God have creeped into the church. Paul acts to remove Hymenaeus and Alexander from the fellowship. False teaching needs to be corrected. Right teaching requires obedience and action. Paul writes of his own testimony as a former blasphemer in chapter 1. He was a persecutor, calls himself a violent aggressor against the truth. How he received mercy through Christ who demonstrated perfect patience is an example for those who would believe. In chapter 2, Paul transitions to application. Personally and collectively, what ought we to do as a first priority? This is where Paul begins in chapter 2. What is of first importance? Prayer. Praying for the lost, those who were dead in sin and who need a Savior. He says, I urge you, I beg you, be passionate about prayer for the lost. He doesn't provide a command here, but wants the motive of the heart to be passionate about prayer for the lost. This is the goal of our instruction. Love from a pure heart, love from a good conscience, love from a sincere faith. He says, he is saying, get away from useless speculation, doctrinal error, and be passionate about first priorities. Now, one could look at this and say that Paul is saying, firstly. I don't believe that's the case, because he never says, secondly. I think he's making a point of first-level importance. This is a big deal to Paul. He was called out of darkness on the road to Damascus. He was converted on that road by the call of Christ on his life. He was called to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. What does that have to do with useless speculation, doctrinal error, and being passionate about it that you would make arguments within the church? Quit misusing the law of God and start doing the work of God, is what he said in, in chapter 1, in paraphrase. Do that work with a right heart, a right attitude, and do it with passion. We ought to pause and call the question, what are we passionate about? If you narrow down what is most important, 
Would passion for the lost matter? As I urged you upon my departure from chapter 1 from, from Macedonia, he tells Timothy, remain at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach these strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. This was the passion of many within the church of Ephesus, but something had been lost. Something had gone awry. So Paul provides a comprehensive outline for evangelistic praying. He sets forth five marks, at least the five marks that I identified. You can outline this passage in many different ways, but five marks of gospel-centered praying. Paul is redirecting their ministry perspective. Those five marks, the characteristic of evangelistic prayers, the breadth of evangelistic prayers, the benefits of evangelistic prayers, the reason for evangelistic prayers, and the heart of evangelistic prayers. I'll read those one more time. The characteristics of evangelistic prayers, the breadth of evangelistic prayers, the benefits of evangelistic prayers, the reason for evangelistic prayers, the heart of evangelistic prayers. Now before we get into that outline for today's message, understand that pleas for salvation are in many portions of scripture. I'm going to highlight one of them. I think it's a compelling story, an actual account recorded in Acts chapter 7. I'm going to start with verse 54. Acts chapter 7, verse 54. If you'll remember, this is right after Stephen's oratory, right prior to his stoning. So Stephen had gone through a fairly long and direct confrontation of preaching, bringing forth much truth. And this is the conclusion of that account. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord. And he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. Stephen's prayer would be answered by Christ's call to a young man named Saul. Listen to what he said once more. Falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. 
That's gospel passion, is it not? Stephen's prayers were heartfelt. His oratory was passionate about his faith. It magnified God's mercy, did it not? That man, Saul, is now writing this letter to Timothy about the importance of evangelistic prayer. It appears that one of the problems at the church of Ephesus is that they wanted exclusive groups to be part of the church. Paul reminded them of his own salvation and how even a persecutor of Christians was given mercy. So let's begin with the characteristic or elements of evangelistic prayer. Verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men. We have a list. If you were in our first hour, Paul has created a list. Sometimes this list, if you read it, could appear to be synonyms. They're very closely tied together. The words in the New American Standard say entreaties, prayers, petitions, and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. This is, this is four elements within prayers. So in this first heading, what are the characteristics or elements of evangelistic prayers? These are the four. First one is entreaties, which is also could be looked at as supplications. A supplication is brought because someone is lacking something of great need. To bring a supplication is to go to the source that can meet that need. We pray because of a need. We Pursue God through supplications because somebody is lacking something very important. When someone is lost, we pray that they be found. The lost are in dire need of salvation with great and pressing problems ahead in judgment. What is humanity's greatest need? The gospel, the good news. What are the purpose of these prayers? They are to be made on behalf of all men. We're going to get to that. This would be an example of a prayer, a short prayer of supplication. Lord, Billy is in need of your saving grace. Lord, may Billy repent, hear your words, and receive your saving offer by faith. Just a simple prayer a supplication. The prayer understands the need. The second element is of prayer is just prayers. This is the general act of communication with God. Prayers reflect a sacred approach. To bow in prayer is an act of worship that acknowledges God's glory. For when salvation comes, it brings with it Glory and honor to God. Heavenly Father, you are the maker of heaven and earth, and it is you to whom all glory is due. 
It is your glory most perfectly seen through the work of Christ unto salvation. Lord, bring Billy to salvation for your glory. To understand who you are. The third thing that's listed here in this short list is petitions, also translated as intercessions. This is an urgent or bold appeal on behalf of a person. This is the urgency of the appeal. Our prayers are like court petitions filed by an attorney to make an appeal for someone. There is a sense here of of extreme urgency in the advocation for another. It's an advocation of prayer to advocate for somebody else. When you pray for the salvation of the lost, you bring forth a petition on their behalf. The person in prayer for another has a deep sense of empathy for the lost. I liken this to the believing parents who have someone in their family who is unsaved. A deep sense of empathy. When the Bible speaks of intercession of Christ in Hebrews and of the Holy Spirit in Romans, there's a sense of need that cannot be fully known. The same way the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So as we do interceding in prayer, we look to the need, we empathize with the person, we intercede on their behalf, understanding the gospel work in us. Paul was a good example, always praying for the lost, always seeking what they do not understand. We pray that the Holy Spirit opens the ears of the hearer, for we cannot do that, but we see the need. We have needs. The Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf. What a blessing that is to have intercession by a holy God. What a blessing it is to be called to intercede in prayer for the lost. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that Billy, for Billy, that he would, that you would enliven his heart to the gospel and that he would hear your call on his heart. These prayers of intercession groan for the lost. They're passionate. The last element is thanksgivings. A prayer of thanksgiving acknowledges the goodness of God's accomplishment. We are to be thankful for God's role as the giver, creator, orchestrator of all circumstances. We are to be thankful that we can pray for the lost. We are to receive all things in gratitude and with a grateful heart, despite the bad news that may be coming. Jonah missed this. He was distressed by the salvation of a people group, the Ninevites. He couldn't be thankful for God's work because his heart was wrong. He was given the right message. He was driven by God to provide it. The results that God intended were received. But Jonah did not display a passionate heart for the lost. In fact, a truly thankful heart sets the object or subject apart for God's glory. 
Prayer is one of those things where we know we don't have, and we realistically don't have much control in this life. It gives that control to God. It gives the receiving glory and grace of, of thankfulness. When God answers prayer or delays prayer, and be, prayers being answered. Lord, we are thankful for your saving power and for all those whom you have called unto salvation. For it is by your hand alone that brings forth your mercy on sinners. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. We're coming up on Thanksgiving. Let it not be the sole time in our year where we consider thankfulness before God. It seems consistent for Paul to list these four elements of evangelistic prayer in plural form. To pray without ceasing and to give thanks for everything is a plural activity. It is ongoing. It is never ceasing. It's a consistent process. To ground prayer into thanksgiving is to lift up God and extend all credit to the Almighty. What do I offer to a situation? Nothing. What does God offer to the situation? Everything. We are mere vessels, clay pots, for the Master's will. Philippians chapter 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be, ancient for no, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We can give it to the Lord in prayer. Here we have a shorter list, but it's really the same list. But in everything by prayer, supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You've given it to God. You've given it to the maker of heaven and earth who can do something about the issues that you face, who can do everything and the only things to bring someone to salvation. So we have the elements of evangelistic prayers. Now let's move to the breadth of evangelistic prayers. These are prayers that are to be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority. It is difficult for us to fathom the size of this request. It is no wonder that we are to pray without ceasing. Who are we to pray for? All men, all people, all peoples within different groups. As we listen to the news, we consider the need for the gospel far and wide. This is more difficult than what we normally consider. Most churches are pretty comfortable with some limitation to the word all. I wouldn't say they would verbalize that, but maybe by action would be pretty comfortable with some limitation. Now the church is exclusive to those who are called to salvation, 
But the prayer for salvation is extended to whom? To all. How can we claim that we love our neighbor as ourselves when we never consider their soul in salvation? Their greatest need. Can bring them a hot dish, but do we pray for their soul in salvation? Do you care about your coworkers or your family? Enough to raise them in prayer, earnest prayer, for the salvation of their soul. Do you share your care through supplication, prayers on their behalf, petitions? Do you intercede in prayer with thanksgiving for their deepest needs? The apostle writes this letter having been imprisoned in the past. He wrote 1 Timothy from Macedonia. He would write 2 Timothy during his last imprisonment during Nero's revolt. It should not come as a surprise that Paul's interaction with governing authorities were constant, were a constant concern. The gospel ministry would come at a significant cost. Gospel preaching would ultimately cost him his earthly life. The call for the gospel prayer is here extended to kings and to all in authority. Paul's charge here is maybe a reflection of his own hostility at the stoning of Stephen. We can get caught up in all the political conflicts of our day, in favoritisms that we hold tightly to, and fail to consider the soul of the people whom we criticize. One theologian makes this observation. The root of the Ephesian issue was a deficit understanding of salvation. This deficiency showed itself in the Ephesian practice of praying only for the select group of people who would adhere to their mythological teaching, excluding others, including secular rulers and all Gentiles. Therefore, Paul says that all types of prayers, especially requests for salvation, should be made on behalf of all people, including rulers. There is no doubt that some governments and rulers are hard to like and to respect. We know that. We've been part of that. But we ought to have a heart for the Putins of the world, the Bidens of the world, the Trumps of the world. We should offer prayers for their very souls. Just think of the change in government if there were conviction brought to these men to bear on their own soul. If the gospel were to be, re were, were to be received by them, what a grace. If Paul can be saved, they can too. If I can be saved, they can too. Paul understood this as a chief, as a chief of all sinners. Because of his saving power through Christ, we extend these prayers to our neighbors, no matter their ethnicity, language, practices, or beliefs. We are to be impartial in our prayers. The Ephesian church had become partial. Partial to control the gospel of the living God. All these, are, all, these all people, are made in the image of God, and all of them are as eternally important as your own family and your own relatives. We want to be aligned with God's saving intentions as a church, as a people. In fact, 
they may be seated next to you in glory. What a blessing. In Acts 17.30, at Mars Hill, we read this. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to all men, to men, that all people everywhere should repent. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. The proof is there. Judgment is coming. The call to all to repent is in place. So we have the elements of evangelistic prayers. We have the breadth of evangelistic prayers. Now let's move to the benefits of evangelistic prayers. Paul's gospel preaching experience was exemplary in courage. He recounts his experiences in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, something that he did not want to do, but was compelled to do because of criticisms towards his ministry. He says, in verse, starting in verse 23, far more labors in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? Paul's passion was deep. Ministry was difficult. Gospel ministry is to bring the message of God's grace and peace to a world that is vying for earthly power and control. The gospel is the only avenue towards peace amongst men and peace with God. Why do we pray for the lost? So that we may lead, according to this passage, a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. That's an interesting statement, is it not? Was Paul experiencing a tranquil, tranquil and quiet life in all dignity and godliness and dignity? Certainly there were tur turmoil about him. The gospel would cost him dearly. But here we have the apostle requesting these prayers for all men and for all in authority, for kings, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Jesus was clear about this. There will be trouble. If they rejected Christ, they will ultimately reject you as well. In John 16, 33, Jesus reminds his disciples, These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. 
In John 15, 20, Jesus said, Remember the word I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Rest assured, we will pay a price for preaching the gospel on this side of heaven as we share in what? The sufferings of Christ. So what is the apostle saying when he indicates an outcome of evangelistic prayers for all men and for those in authority will lead to a quiet and tranquil or peaceful life in all godliness and dignity? Seems somewhat contradictory to what Jesus was teaching, but not in the least. As we pray for kings and all in authority and focus on their, their salvation, we direct our thinking to their soul and not their politics. It rewires our mind. If you pray for Putin, it redirects your mind. When you look at his very soul, the judgment that's coming to him, it redirects your thinking, and it gets your thoughts deeper into the need of which your subject is being prayed for. The gospel is good news. The good news prayer and communicator does not threaten earthly authority. When we argue about politics and set other things of this world on such a high pedestal, we become divisive for things that are not gospel-oriented. To evangelistically pray for authority rightly directs the church to matters of mission and not matters of earthly conflict. Let us be known as peaceable people wanting salvation for all men. The gospel will cause persecution without just cause. That is true. This is what Paul was talking about in 2 Corinthians 11. This is what Jesus exemplified in his trial before Pontius Pilate. Pilate came out again, if you'll remember, and said to him, to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. That's how Jesus lived his life. He was laser-focused on God's glory, on fulfilling the mission not an argument with Pontius Pilate. In 1 Timothy 6.13, Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate. The testimony of our Lord was not about politics. It was not about divisions within the whole world culture. It was a good confession. The prayer here is what we would pray and how we should live in a focused way as to make the only cause of harm toward us based solely on the gospel of Jesus Christ. If that is the case, then much of our life will be in tranquility. Why is that? Well, let's consider this. If Christians showed up at the Capitol steps to speak the gospel of peace on January 6th, And if they had a collective prayer meeting for all men, including those in authority, to be saved, they would be mocked, they would be ridiculed, but ultimately there were, were to be no threat. There's no harm to anyone. There's a message of good news. There's a testimony of the good confession. May we pray for the salvation of those in authority and yearn as our Lord does for them to be saved. 
The fact that we live quiet and tranquil lives is an answer to many prayers, and we do. We have a foundation here in this country where we can worship, come together, mostly in tranquility because we have a structure that allows us, by answered prayer, to preach the gospel. We will be mocked. We will be ridiculed. But the structure is there. What a thankful thing that we have. If the Lord grants more to come into salvation, it will certainly be for his glory and for our peace. Let us live in all godliness and dignity, the scripture says. This allows us to live in holiness and purity as a service of worship before God. We have that structure. Our problem is that we struggle with holiness in our own lives. We veer off the course. We're cluttered with interaction, interruptions and things that take our focus off of what we ought to be really worried about. To meet as a body of Christ is to be salt and light to a dying world. That's how our meeting should be viewed. Oh, there will be accusation, but it's unfounded. John MacArthur says it this way, I want you to understand what the scripture is saying in light of that. Christians are to be model citizens. That doesn't mean we're indifferent or apathetic or don't have an opinion, but we are to model citizens. We are to be model citizens in every way. We are to be a blessing and a benediction to everyone around us. Just focus on that for a second. Are you a blessing, am I? I'll personalize it. Am I a blessing and a benediction to everyone around me? We are to pray for the salvation of everyone. And if they know us, they should know the church not as a strong political lobby group, not as a powerful group with money or moving through society for its own ends. They are to know us as a quiet, peace-loving people who are constantly committed to praying for the salvation of those who are outside. We are to submit to the authority over us. And more than, than just submit to it, we are to pray for the salvation of those very people. If we do that, if the church in this country was to band together in spirit, covenanting together in prayer for the lost in our nation, and to pray for our rulers and pray for our leaders and not engage in power kind of efforts and kind of moves and power kind of politics to overturn things and eliminate people to get rid of them, but rather pray for their salvation, we would never be accused or even suspected of disloyalty. Nor would anybody miss the point of our existence. And we would be more likely to be allowed to worship and evangelize without fear and restriction. And thus to live our lives in a quiet and tranquil way. Colossians 4, 2 through 4, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in, in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up the door for the word. That's really what Paul is saying here. To open up the door for the word. If we're disloyal, if we're combative, if we're argumentative, the word is reduced. 
the petty arguments begin. That God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ. That's the function. It's the gospel for which I have also been imprisoned that I may make it clear in a way I ought to speak. When you really think about it, Paul was in prison in Rome, kind of on a type of house arrest, able to have visitors come and go. Why is that? Because the Apostle Paul was not looking for release. He was not looking to buck the system. This is the Apostle with Silas who was singing in the jail, ministering to the Lord, waiting for the next opportunity for an evangelistic moment. This is the Apostle of the gospel who preached to the Praetorian Guard. So we have the elements of evangelistic prayers. We have the breadth of the prayer. We have seen the benefits of evangelistic prayer. What is the ultimate reason for evangelistic prayers? The scripture here says, because it is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Do you want to please God? Be thankful. You want to please God? Be an evangelistic prayer. Be a continual, consistent prayer for the lost. It is good and acceptable in the sight of God. You know, you want to know God's will for your life? This is one of them. To pray, to align with him. Evangelistic prayers praise God. They align us with God's goodness. We see his plan as good. It is useful and is in accord with his will. God sees these prayers as useful, profitable, and fertile. These prayers are sanctifying acts of continual worship. What a blessing. Philippians 4.8 Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. I think the electronic world has made me much less effective much more distracted. Here's the list that I should dwell on from Philippians 4. We stand before the face of the living God. Our chief end is to glorify him and enjoy him forever. Is that really true? Is that how we live our lives? Our eternity will be in his presence. This is the creator whose works are good. God said in his creation, it is good. For he sees his works and declares them as such. Our problem is that we don't always like to be doing what he has for us to do. So we have the elements of evangelistic prayers. We have seen the breadth of the evangelistic prayer. We've seen benefits. We've seen the ultimate reason for evangelistic prayers. 
Now let's take a look at what is the heart behind evangelistic prayers. It says, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Verse 4, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, one mediator, also between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. The testimony given at the proper time, for this I was appointed, a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. This is the heart of a God who sends a redeemer, a mediator, between God and sinful man. This is a God who desires that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Jesus came to testify to the truth. He came to provide a way in the truth. We ought to be known people of that way. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The heart of a believer has the heart of the Savior. It should bear that fruit. Here's an example from Romans chapter 9. Here's Paul's heart. I'm telling the truth in Christ. He says again, I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish myself to be accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Paul's great sorrow and unceasing grief in his heart was for the lost. He was so excited about the salvation within his own heart that he would even have been separated from that to see others receive it. This is one of the greatest examples of an evangelistic heart. A more modern example, still ancient in time, is George Whitfield. If you haven't read George Whitfield's account, Steve Lawson has an outstanding little book on the evangelistic zeal of George Whitfield. Whitfield's gospel preaching is unparalleled. It is estimated that he preached 1,000 times per year for 30 years. Think about that 1,000 times per year. There's 365 days in a year. I was very humbled by that in my preparations for this preaching that I'm doing right now that I don't do all that frequently. The, so the Lord sovereignly used him in the conversion of many souls. It's estimated that 80% of early colonial America heard him preach. 80%. He spent years on ships traveling between multiple continents. I have no doubt he preached three days a week on a ship. Steve Lawson, in his evangelistic zeal of George Whitfield, cites other sources regarding what Whitfield's prayer life was like. Whitfield's prayer life was a major part of his spiritual success. The grand secret of Whitfield's preaching power, as seen and felt, was his devotional spirit. He had, he, had he been less prayerful, he would have been less powerful. Whitfield was much for God because he was much with him 
Whitfield was in, absorbed in intimate prayer. Individually and corporately, the Ephesian church, like many churches today, had lost its evangelistic zeal. I wonder if this is what our Lord was saying about their first love in the book of Revelation. This is not good in God's sight. If you have lost your fervor for evangelistic prayer, it is not good. Do you practice evangelistic prayer? Do you pray fervently with regularity for the lost? Do you pray broadly for all mankind? Do you have the heart for the lost, for those in civil leadership and for those in authority, with a precise purpose to bring them unto salvation and so the gospel may be preached in a land that has peace and tranquility? Do we desire God's approval? Is that something on your high list? Do you yearn for the lost in harmony with God's desires that they be saved? We see here a statement very similar in 2 Peter chapter 3. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. This reminds me of David's prayer in Psalm 39, Moses' prayer in Psalm 90. Teach me to number my days. Going through much difficulty, both David and Moses are examples of men of prayer. We would not have the Psalms without David. We would not have the Psalms to the depth that they are without David's trouble. We would not have the Psalms about repentance and confession and truly alignment with God without even David's sin. But we see the work of God through the heart of salvation, his desire. Now we see here that this could be mistaken for universalism, that God purposes that all men be saved, so therefore they will. That's not what Paul's talking about. This is not a defense against God's sovereign election, for Paul wrote that to this very church in Ephesians chapter 1, a preceding letter. In this context, it appears that Paul is addressing the teaching that only certain sects of people can be saved. The gospel is for all people. Paul clears this up by stating that he was appointed to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, a group that was excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. Paul concludes this passage with a challenge for us today. Therefore, in verse 8, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Keep it focused. Stop the arguments. Paul's call here is for men. 
This is a male leadership mandate. Paul calls us out to lead in these types of prayers, to be examples in these types of prayers, to set their members apart, our physical minds and our, and our resources apart for gospel, doctrine, clarity, to present these things with a good conscience and a sincere faith, focused on the mediator and savior that is Christ Jesus. He was directly urging the men at the church of the Ephesians to stop the dysfunction and start the praying. He says, lifting up holy hands. To be holy is to be unpolluted by the world. To lift up holy hands is to be for the work of holiness. This is the call. It's not about doing much of what we do, but lifting up holy hands. I'm telling you that in preparation for this, this is why I say that the church should never not expositorily preach these books. Do you see how far off we get? How easily entangled we get with the world? He was directly urging these men to stop it. He is telling us the same thing, men. Stop it. Pursue these prayers. Align yourself with a holy God. Lift up holy hands. Hands freed for gospel work. Consider, if you will, 1 Peter chapter 1. Was referenced today in our first hour. I'm going to read from verse 13 through 16. Peter's call. And there is a therefore there. So there's something that precedes it. Read it earlier or later. Uh, but I'm just going to stick to this passage. He says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were, which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourself also in all your behavior because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Let us men lift up holy hands in prayer for the lost. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you, Lord. We thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you for this great reminder of evangelistic prayers. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to pray for others, for the enlightened mind that allows us to intercede and see the need and to supplicate for them. Lord, I just pray that you would help us to do this with more regularity as men in this church to lead in the same manner. We thank you, Lord, for kings and authorities that you have put over us, that they may give us structure, even as it says in Romans 13, that the government is for our good. Lord, help us to see the good in the structure that we have and to take advantage of peace and tranquility that we have to be gospel-oriented and to be preaching the gospel. 
Help us to be known, not by other views, but by our alignment to you and what you have done to reform us, to bring us to peace with you through your mediation work in Christ. In your name I pray, amen.